Welcome to Storytelling with Lindsay Bednar. Hi, Michelle. Hi there. How are you? Good. How are you? Very good. Thanks for asking. Uh, thanks for coming on today. I have such a little understanding about this whole realm of family law, and I have, you know, some friends who have experienced it. Um, but the things they went through were pretty amicable and easy. And so the basis of my knowledge is from like TV and movies. Like I think of the movie Liar Liar. Uh oh. Uh oh. I feel like I'm going to have a conversation with you, like I tell a lot of my clients. <laughs> Which is great because, yes, it's such a limited view mm-hmm. into uh, what you actually view. And yeah, of course, you know, media shows it how they want to show it. So um, I want. Uh, a more realistic insight into into this whole world because it, the reality is I, I don't know what the divorce rate is now, but mm-hmm. I know years ago around fifty percent. So family law is something I, I anticipate a lot of people deal with at some point in their life. Is that accurate? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. If if you don't go through it yourself, you know somebody um, who has gone through a divorce, and if it's not a divorce, they've had you know, maybe a, a custody or a parenting time issue. So I would be very, very, very surprised if people didn't know at least five people who have gone through um, and either gone through the family court system or retained an attorney to a deal with a family a law matter. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And as a teacher, when I was in education, that was something I saw, you know, a lot when you have uh, classes full of students. You have a lot of people going through uh, divorces and, and family court things. So absolutely, um, I have seen that side of it. But you know, I was I was thinking about um, how people start. One of my favorite things when I connect with people is is how people start in their career paths that get you to where you are now. And when I think of family law, like uh, maybe unjustly so, but one of the words that comes to mind is turmoil. Cause I think of, you know, divorce or custody battles. And so, um, I imagine it comes with a, a lot of weighted things. And so what, what is, was your career path and what ultimately led you to want to delve into family law? You know, that's, that's a, I will try and keep this brief because it's kind of a long winded question or a long winded answer rather. Um, so when I got out of high school, I just, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, went to a community college, community, yeah, I know, went to a community college and I really, um, you know, I didn't know really where I wanted to go, what my interests were. Um, but I really loved my aunt. This is a little shout out to my aunt Kim. Um, she was a legal secretary. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll give that a shot. So I went to Minnesota School of Business. Um, was trained as a legal secretary. And it's kind of funny because back when I did it, you were literally learning on a old standard typewriter um, that we had typing classes. I actually had to take a shorthand class, if you can believe it. So to learn how to write down things very quickly. And I'm not really all that old either. <laughs> you, know, you can see me, maybe not everybody can see me, but I, I don't feel like I'm that old. But yeah, I had to I had to learn shorthand. So I, I got my legal secretary cert- certification got a job right away, um, quickly found out that I did not enjoy that. Um, there were a lot of things about a legal secretary that I didn't like, but I worked for a family law firm. Um, and that family law firm also had some business side to it. So I went to paralegal school 
And um, I did that, worked as a paralegal for about five years, and then landed a job um, at more of a premier law firm that specializes in complex dissolution proceedings and, you know, high conflict cases. And I was working at that firm for quite a long time as a paralegal. And I just got to the point where I was at the cap of what I could do as a paralegal because paralegals can't give legal advice. There are certain things that we just can't do. So I was walking right up to the line, um, but not being able to do everything that an attorney could do. And I was pretty young at that time. And so I thought, well, I've got two choices. I can either go to law school or I can change career paths completely. And I made a decision at that time to get back to school and go to law school. But that was a challenge itself because I didn't have a four-year degree. So I was of a certain age taking gym classes and <laughs> arts and you know, music because I had to get what I needed to do to, to get into law school. Sure. And, you know, when I was in, yeah, when I was in law school, I, I thought, you know, I thought to myself, you know, don't limit yourself. I mean, I had worked for a family law firm for many, many years and I enjoyed it. Um, but I also didn't want, you know, to think that maybe there was another area of law that might interest me more than family law. Um, and it turns out that there really wasn't. I, I kind of liked maybe elder law a little bit. Um, but I really just gravitated toward family law. And when you were working, was that a, a different path than most of the people that you were working with? Had most of them gone to school first before they were in the industry? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, most, most people will, I mean, if you're, you know, they'll go to law school and you, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure how people end up landing in a certain area of law. Um, necessarily it's whether or not it's the first job that you get. I mean, I do, I have said to attorneys in the past that are younger attorneys, um, you know, if you don't love family law, don't stay in it because, you know, you're going to get pigeonholed and it's a hard profession. I mean, it's, it's very taxing. I mean, you see people at one of the worst periods of time in their life and a lot of them are in crisis. Um, you know, sometimes I equate it to being like an emergency room physician at times, you know, you get these people just panicking not knowing what to do, not knowing who to go to, especially when their kids are involved. Um, sure. So yeah, it's very high stress. It's very, it can be very intensive. So if they, if people don't love it when they're in it, when they're younger, I, I don't know why you'd stay in it. <laughs> it's just a long term. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's something you probably didn't know earlier on, but uh, now that you've been in it for a while and just as we get older, we're, we're more self-aware as to our inherent characteristics that mm -hmm. aid us in the career that we're doing. So what do you feel like is part of your makeup, your own personality that makes for you to be able to do a job where you are seeing people mm -hmm. at their lowest of the low a lot of times? You know, I think, I think that I'm pretty, I, I tend to be pretty empathetic. Um, you know, I, I will caution my clients that, you know, listen, I can listen to you, um, but I'm not, you know, I'm more expensive than a therapist. So if you've got real issues, you know, you should probably, you know, we should talk about getting a therapist for you and not me. But, you know, I really do try and listen to people and listen to their concerns. Um, you know, so you've got the emotional side of that. But at this, you know, on the flip side, you know, as an advocate and as an attorney, you know, I feel that, you know, I'm pretty good at, um, you know, digging into things. A lot of times what I find in my job is people think, oh, they're hiding money, they're hiding this, there's a girlfriend, there's, you know, all of these things that these characteristics that people are doing and, you know, clients want to want to find out. 
And, um, you know, that's something that I'm willing to do is to really look into it. And I, I actually kind of enjoy that. Um, yeah, I want to talk it more is, about that. Oh, that's fun. That, I mean, that, that can be fun. And I, you know, nothing, and I, you know, I don't want you to think like, oh, I, I really think divorce is fun. But, you know, when you get into types of things where people are hiding in money and finding those accounts that they think are hidden, that's, that's pretty fun. Yeah. How often does that happen? Because that, I, okay, I, I so many questions about all of this, but yeah. one of the things uh, I wanted to know is uh, what kinds of things do you see that hurt a, a, a divorce or, or custody bat, battle? Um, and I assume obviously hiding financials is mm -hmm. one of them. So mm -hmm. what are, what's kind of under that umbrella of things that like, Oh, we found this and that's, that's going to sting. Yeah. I mean, hiding things is the number one, I think the number one, no, no. Um, you know, I can't tell there's been, there's been several times where I found out from the other side that my client has behaved poorly and that mm -hmm. is never a good luck. Right. I mean, because I'm an advocate and I want to hear it from my client. I want to hear it from them versus hearing it, you know, while I'm sitting in the courtroom or sitting in mediation. And I, I hear from the mediator that my client has has acted poorly. And, you know, I would rather know it and deal with it, um, you know, but hiding assets, um, substance abuse can be a pretty big one. And that's always a touchy subject because, you know, for a lot of people, that's hard. It's hard to talk about that and it's hard to admit yeah. that they may have a problem. Um, and, but finding that out, I mean, I just had that happen to me yesterday, actually. Um, I have a newer client and I, I didn't, I didn't know that there were potential substance abuse issues and the other side, you know, I was talking with the other attorney and she alerted me to it. And so I had to confront my client and that's a hard conversation to have. Um, right. So, you know, substance abuse issues, you know, can be a, a big deal, um, you know, alienating, you know, when, when parents try and alienate, you know, the other parent um, for parenting time, and it turns out there's no good reason to do any of the alienation, that's just not a good look for the courts. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's lots and lots of things that, that people can get tripped up on. So with substance abuse, how is that? Um, I, I feel like that's so common. And mm -hmm. how do you go about uh, proving it if it's, uh, you know, somebody's word against the other and, or do people, if it's say your client or do they, mm -hmm. they own up to it or how does that come to fruition where, um, I would think there has to be some sort of proof. Yeah. A lot of times people will own up to it. Um, but there's, you know, if they don't own up to it, um, you know, the conversation that I will have with my client is listen, if the other side is saying that you have, you know, substance abuse issues, um, there are certain measures that can be put into place, um, you know, testing requirements, for instance, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of different agencies that will provide, um, you know, testing. And, you know, my, if, if people don't have a problem, then they should be completely fine with doing the testing. Right. So right. if, you know, if you, if you do have, and, and usually it's for a limited period of time, you know, we, I don't suggest to my clients that if there's an allegation of substance abuse that you, you know, do it for you know, six months or a year, but if you do it for a little while and you, you come clean, then hopefully that you've satisfied the other side that, you know, maybe you don't have that problem, but, um, you know, there's chemical dependency evaluations that you can ask people to submit to, um, using, you know, making sure that both parties are collateral witnesses. Um, so that if, you know, my client thinks that, you know, I'm just going to 
my client thinks maybe her husband has a drinking problem that my client is able to talk to the evaluator to make sure that all the information is received in the evaluation. And what happens if they deny the request? Does that, can they do that? They can, and then you bring a motion. So you ask the judge, you bring a motion, schedule a motion, and you have to have some, you know, I mean, you have to have some proof. You just can't say, you know, I mean, so proof would be, you know, past DWIs, you know, maybe third party affidavits, you know, talking about, um, you know, all of this, all of the time that's, that uh, maybe some friends or family have, have witnessed the other individual intoxicated. You have bank records and credit card records, you know, showing the amount of, you know, maybe liquor stores that the person is, is going to. I mean, I've had, I've had people make up some wild and crazy stories about why they have a lot of liquor charges on their, you know, <laughs> on their <laughs> credit card. Yeah. These what credit those card. stories. Oh yeah. No, people can be pretty creative. Interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it, it leads into another thing I was curious about is how many, how often do people trump up stories? Because I, I <laughs> I've known of some relationships where um, there have been some accusations and I'm like, ah, I just, that, that doesn't sit right. And I know the character of each mm -hmm. party and um, I'm not buying it. And so uh, is that a common theme that you see? And if so, which yeah. uh, gender? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think most people, I shouldn't say most people, I think that, you know, when you're in a situation like this and you're, you know, trying to get a certain parenting time arrangement or there's financial issues that are an issue. I think that it's kind of common for people to stretch the truth. And some people stretch the truth a little bit further than others will stretch the truth. Um, mm -hmm. What people need to understand though is, is they're sometimes they're not as smart as they think they are. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, we've, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time and you know, it's, you can, you can see the same stories, the same things coming out in dissolution cases. And, mm. you know, it's not, it might be a different little variation of a story, but it's something that we've seen before. So it, yeah, I don't know if that's really answering your question, but it's, it's, it's not uncommon to have people, you know, telling little white lies or big white lies, right. Or just flat out lies, right. you know? Yeah. And I suppose you get really good at just reading people mm -hmm. and the way that they deliver a story or um, what it is that they're saying about, you know, their, yeah. their ex or spouse. Okay. And a lot of times there's paper trails. I mean, you know, there can be, there can be a lot of paper trails with the financial data. Um, if you have, you know, a, a good attorney who's willing, and I, I love, by the way, that you keep using the word curious. Um, because that is something I, I, um, taught paralegals for a while. Um, uh, I don't know, years and years ago. And that is the word that I would use for them when I was, um, teaching them as I would say that the best thing that you can do in family law is to remain curious. Um, because, you know, when I'm looking at a bank statement, I might see a bank statement. I mean, every, every client of mine in a divorce, I have to look at a bank statement, but if I'm not curious about what is being charged or what money is running through that, then I'm doing my client a disservice. So I like, I like that you're using that word. Yeah. Well, thanks. It's a, it's been a buzzword of uh, my friend and I, we just recorded a podcast last week and mm -hmm. we always talk about 
being curious because that is like one of the things we want to bring to any kind of situation. I think especially uh, in 2024 when things are so like divided and heightened, uh, mm-hmm. the best thing way we can approach anything is with curiosity. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, that, that also just avoids a lot of a conflict and intention and disagreements that just are unnecessary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in addition to you digging and finding things, you know, so it works in a, a multitude of ways. Absolutely. So do you, are the cases that you work with, are they um, more uh, with divorce or custody or is it kind of split? Um, I would, okay, so divorce and custody can be the same. You know, you can have a divorce and have a custody, um, a custody case within the divorce. So that's not, I don't think that there, it's, I can do a percentage of that. Um, because sure. if there's, if there's kids involved and, and going through a divorce and they don't agree, then you've got a, a custody proceeding within, within a divorce. Um, you know, custody itself is going to be when people are not married. Um, that's why you would bring just a regular, you know, a custody case would be if you have two people who have had a relationship, sometimes they've had a relationship for a really long time and they have a child and then their relationship is ending. And since they're not married, they can't do a divorce. So they bring a custody proceeding. Um, sometimes you've got the one night stands. Um, so we have, we have those cases too. I don't get as many of those. Uh, most of the time it's a custody case that I, that people retain me for is it's a longer relationship and they're just ending it. And there happens to be, you know, one or two kiddos involved. Sure. Yeah. I wanted to know more about the, the marriage laws, because I remember, for instance, when I was in college and my, um, it was my health teacher. Uh, she was in a lesbian partnership. This was before uh, gay marriage was passed. And mm-hmm. I remember her sharing the story with our uh, our classes about, um, she had a pretty high profile story. Her, her wife was involved in a car accident and she, because they didn't um, weren't married and the law wasn't recognized, she did not have uh, very many rights in that courtship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I remember when the they were going to pass gay marriage and I was, you know, sharing the importance of it and things. And so I know that there, at least previously, were uh, that people didn't have as many rights outside of being, marriage, being married. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what does that look like now? What kinds of rights uh, does a, um, a person have in a courtship if they're not married? Um, maybe if it's under common law, you can talk about common law too. Um, and is it different if they have children together, assets together, that kind of thing? Well, Minnesota doesn't have common law. So oh, okay. we're not, we're not a common law state. Um, well, so that's that, probably why that happened. Huh? What was that's that? Probably why that? So perhaps that's why that happened or maybe it was with, because, with your health teacher. Yeah. Maybe it was because, you it know, was yeah, I, I'm wondering if I know which case you're talking about, to be honest with you. Was it, it was a, it was a big case. Um, uh, gosh, I, I want to say was, was the name Sharon? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about because my former um, boss where I started out as a paralegal, she was one of the attorneys in that case. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. It was before my time. Um, but, but yeah, I know exactly which, which case you're talking about. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean, now if it, you know, same sex couples, it's the same as if they were, you know, if they were, if they're married and they're getting a divorce, it would be, it's the same. It's not any different. Um, yeah. 
So, I mean, it's just with the unmarried couples, um, you know, that's where it can be a little bit, you know, a little bit tricky if it's a heterosexual couple, you know, nothing's, you know, there's, there's nothing really that um, is different, um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not completely brushed up on um, the same sex issues. You know, those are something that when I get a case, I actually do some research a little bit just to brush up on it because I don't get as many of those. Um, okay. so I, yeah, I don't know that I really want to talk about that completely, but, um, you know, there are things that, that they can do, you know, to make sure that they get custody and parenting time. And if, you know, if, if it's, if it doesn't fall under, you know, custody and parenting time, then there's a different proceeding that they can do. It's called third party custody. So that gets into a whole other, a whole other realm of family law. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So with, uh, with two parents who are not married, but mm -hmm. they have, um, they don't have, or they do have children together, you're getting into a custody case, what kinds of uh, legal rights do each have? And are we, I, I've always heard that we're a state that favors the mom in those kinds of situations. Is that accurate? Is that a misconception? Well, that's, that's, that's hard, actually. Um, because even if, so let's, let's say, um, I'm just going to make Bob and Sue, right? The, the generic names. Let's say Bob and Sue have a relationship. They have little, you know, little um, Jimmy and, you know, five years happen and they're living in the same, living in the same house, not living in the same, whatever, whatever. they're co-parenting and they're doing just fine. If, you know, mom decides for whatever reason that she's angry because I don't know, maybe you know, Bob got a new relationship with a new girlfriend and now the new girlfriend's coming into the picture. I mean, you can imagine all the turmoil that happens with that. Mom can just, mm -hmm. even if there's a recognition of parentage signed by dad at the hospital, mom has sole legal and sole physical custody of the child until, um, you know, until the court says otherwise. So that means dad has to rush to the court to start an action so that he can get some custody and parenting time and start making decisions with you know, with regard to their child, which, you know, I, um, I think is a little archaic. Um, mm -hmm. But and, and I, I get a lot of dads who say they don't understand and it's not fair. And I agree with them. Um, mm -hmm. It really upsets me when when moms take that position right away that, you know, all of a sudden, just because they have that, I guess, power, for lack of better words, that they that right. they invoke that. Um, because yes. as long as there's nothing wrong with the parent relationship, do you know who it's damaging? It's not hurting dad. It's hurting the kids. And that's, right. that's the trouble that I have is like, why, why are you doing that to your, to your child? Yeah. It seems like a, a scorned woman move, you know, if, if it's coming from the place of, okay, well, they've moved, husband's moved on. He has somebody else and they're going to. Well, it's not husband in that case. Yeah, it's not husband in that case. If you're married, yeah, if you, yeah, it's a, it's an unmarried couple. So it's more yeah. like boyfriend, girlfriend, or one night stand, or whatever, whatever it is. It's an unmarried couple um, that's so parenting. Default. Default, yeah, default, default is, yep. Default goes to mom when the couple is not married. Yep. Mm -hmm. Even if everything's been going hunky dory for five, ten years. Wow. So what if the mom and you know, I, I can think of situations. What if the mom isn't as fit as the father? Does that just 
come out hopefully in the custody battle or? Yep. Yep. And you could, you know, I mean, if you had a situation where, you know, mom was, you know, using drugs or doing something, you know, unsafe, I mean, you could bring an emergency motion before the court um, and ask that something happen. I mean, the problem is, is that, you know, like what you were saying at the very beginning is that you're limited to like TV and, um, you know, I get that a lot with my clients. They, they want instant action, you know, instant gratification. They want the court to make a decision and it doesn't work that fast. I mean, it is very, very slow. And our court system, especially in family law has gotten even slower after COVID. So I, it can, the, yeah, it can yeah. take months to just get a hearing date, right? So you get a hearing date. And let's, let's say there's a parenting time issue and mom is withholding parenting time or not giving as much parenting time to dad as, as dad thinks he should, he deserves. We can't reach an agreement. We try to go to mediation, maybe see if we can get a deal. If that doesn't work, we have to wait to get a hearing date with the court. And sometimes that can take six months to get a hearing date, right? So now we're six months out while we have the hearing date. Judges aren't required to issue an order until 90 days after that hearing. So you could be looking at nine months from when the issue was raised with me until I can get a result for my client through the court system, which can be frustrating, you know, pretty much for almost everybody involved, except for the person that is, you know, maybe with, with withholding the child. Um, so, I mean, that, right. that's hard. It's hard. It's hard for me to explain that to clients that I don't have any control. I'm going as quickly as I can within the mm-hmm. system but the system isn't always perfect and we're a little overtaxed right now. So if you have an unmarried couple with, the, uh, you know, a child um, and something like that happens, mom goes to, uh, they go to court over custody with all of this tying up, potentially this kid could go without seeing their dad for nine months. <laughs> I think that might, be, that might be an extreme, um, okay. you know, if, if no parenting time at all would be an extreme. I think if that, if that were happening, I would do something different. You know, I would, I would perhaps ask for maybe more of an emergency, um, type hearing to address that, um, you know, at least okay. get a phone call, you know, that I, I wouldn't, I don't think that the courts would, you know, unless there's endangerment issues, I think that that's, that's tough. I mean, I'm not going to say that that wouldn't happen in a certain situation in a certain county with, I mean, you know, I can't predict what, what would happen with different judges in different, you know, counties, but, you know, as, as an attorney, I would definitely try to do something to prevent that from happening. You spoke to kind of the time of how things move. So what, what is the average span from when somebody comes to you, says, I want to file for divorce Mm -hmm. on average, when does that come to fruition? And when is it settled? That's a good question. So if, if you file the um, petition, you know, right away, let's say, you know, you came to me today and we got everything served and filed, you know, next week and we have a judicial officer assigned. Um, there's no golden rule about how long courts want, you know, how long you can keep your file active, you know, in the court system. But as a general rule, judges like to see cases come in and out within a year. So, and that's a lot, that's a long time. Um, Mm -hmm. but that's if you have to go through the whole court system and get to a trial. So, you know, judges are very aware, um, of how long a case has been with them and underneath, you know, what, what they're responsible for. So we have a lot of setting of, um, 
you know, status conferences and, um, you know, just kind of check-ins with the courts so the court can see where we're at and see if there's anything that they, the court can do to assist um, everybody moving along. But generally speaking, it's, you know, it's about a year. Okay. And what happens if, say, you have a stay-at-home mom, the husband is the breadwinner, um, and they go to file for divorce, uh, what happens financially in that time before it's settled? Because uh, that would be, you know, a, a question I would have if, say, um, hypothetically, and, you know, Gary, I'm not going anywhere, and neither are you. But, <laughs> um, and we both work. But, you know, uh, I would feel as a, a woman so vulnerable um, as to what's going to happen next. Like my job's been taking care of the kids yeah. and the home and so um, what does that process look like? Well, oftentimes that's very scary. Um, and that's, that's um, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of women, you know, are stuck in relationships that are unsafe and not healthy because of that fear. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the only thing that, that we can do is really try to get the others, you know, the other side to agree to a status quo um, on a temporary basis. And, sometimes you know, sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. And again, if you can't reach that in agreement on how temporary finances are going to be paid, sometimes, you know, people have to loan, you know, take loans from their family to get them to get them by for a little bit until we can get into the court system and until we can get before the judge and say, hey, judge. You know, this is how we were operating our finances before he's not paying. But, you know, if we go back to that conversation that we had, you know, earlier about what are some things that look good and look bad, I think this this is one of those situations where if I had the money spouse, I would say, listen, you don't want to go in front of this judge and have be have who might be making the final decision for you on, you know, custody, parenting time, finances, whatever. And I have to look at them and say, yeah, you know, I know there's this mortgage and I know, you know, she needs money for gas and, you know, food for the kids, but my guy just doesn't want to, he doesn't want to pay, you know, that's right. not, that's not a good look. So, you know, if I have the moneyed spouse, I'm going to try really hard to talk them into paying something, at least do something so that it doesn't get before the court and you have this bad first impression. Sometimes those right. bad first impressions, they stick. And it's really hard to get out from underneath them. Sure. Well, what if, okay, now I'm, <laughs> I'm getting into more hypotheticals. Sure. So what if um, the the wife, uh, say she's a stay-at-home mom again, um, but she has been, um, uh, she's had infidelity, which is what drove them to divorce. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, is uh, did we, I don't think we talked about this yet. Is this a no fault state? Correct. No fault state. Okay. So will you just, um, briefly explain what that means? No fault means all, all that has to be pled in a divorce petition is that there's an irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. You don't have to say why you don't have to say what it is. It's just that there's a breakdown and it can't be fixed. That's all that needs to be pled. But, you know, with infidelity, you know, that is a very common reason, you know, for for a divorce. And, you know, I have a I have a lot of people say, well, doesn't it mean anything? And I guess the answer to that is it depends. 
um, you know, infidelity can come into play with a custody and parenting time case, for instance, because you've already got a potential third person that's involved. And is this third person going to be um, meeting the children? Um, is this third person going to be taking, you know, time away from parenting? You know, is this new relationship more interesting and fun than being a parent? So for custody and parenting time issues, you know, it's not like you can point the finger and say, he or she cheated, therefore I should have more time. But it might, you know, it, it might come into play and it might be factored in on the custody and parenting time for that reason. On the financial piece, and I'm usually it's, usually it's the husband. So I, on the financial piece, it's because the husband is, um, you know, potentially buying gifts or taking trips or buying jewelry, or, you know, sometimes when there's wealth involved, they're, you know, paying for a whole nother house for a significant other. And sometimes this money adds up to be a lot of money. And when that happens and we can trace it and we can find it, we add that money back onto the balance sheet, you know, or at least attempt to, um, to make, you know, the, the, the person whole so that, you know, (laughs) 50 grand, yeah. 50 grand hasn't been spent on, you know, girlfriend or boyfriend. And I have to tell my client too bad. So sad, you know, that sucks for you. That's gotta be so vindicating when you can find that for your client mm-hmm. who's been wronged. I can't imagine like. The, yeah. I've the had, I've had some pretty, pretty big, pretty big, de- what we call de- a depletion claim. Um, I've had some pretty big ones, like very large. And then I've had some where I've, I've just had to say, you know what, I know there's a Victoria's Secret charge on the credit card, but it's a hundred bucks. You got to let it go. Cause that's the only thing I, that's the only thing we can find. Um, you know, but you know, it could be very, very large or not, not anything, not anything that we want to want to bring up. Yeah. So you've seen more than once where uh, people are paying for like a whole other, basically lifestyle for a, somebody else that they've been hiding. Yeah, I have. Oh, yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and sad. It's, it's sad. It's sad. You know, it's sad when, when the other person doesn't know, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's and hard. You have to break that down. Well, you know, it kind of comes out in conversation, right? I mean, a lot of times by the time I, by the time I, that's usually the reason for the divorce is they find out what's been going on and then they come, you know, and talk, talk to an attorney about getting a divorce. It's you, I can't say that I've, other than like the, the Victoria's Secret charges that I've talked about, um, if it's a big depletion claim, you know, because there's been money that's spent on a significant other, I, I can't even recall a situation where that's been discovered middle, you know, in the midst of a divorce, it's the, my client already knows about it. And we're just charged with, okay, you know, go through all the Amex cards and look at all the, you know, I mean, Amex will show you who the flight is for. You know, if you're purchasing a flight for somebody else, then you just see, oh, that was for Bob. And this one's for, that's for Gina. Yep. No, (laughs) Gina, here's Gina again. Gina gets to go to Vegas again. So, you know, then you just add up all the charges and then you look at how much time they spent in Vegas and you, you know, just start creating Mm -hmm. a spreadsheet and keeping track of it. Yeah. The bravado of people to think that they can just slide that under the rug and, you know, get away with it is fascinating to me. Well, 
Yes. And then there's, you know, there's, there's, you know, personality disorders that come into play and, you know, Mm -hmm. I can't say that everybody who, you know, obviously wouldn't, wouldn't say that anybody who, you know, has, has a significant other would be as a personality disorder. I would never, ever say that, but, um, you know, sometimes that comes into play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I imagine that you've dealt with some narcissists and Mm -hmm. throughout your career and, mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Yep. And real, real ones. And then, um, you know, of course, a lot of people, a lot of people tell me that they think that they're soon to be ex-spouse as a narcissist and, Unless there's a diagnosis, there's, they're not. Yeah. I mean, I, that term narcissist, I'm, I see it so often on social media and I think it's definitely overused. I think there's, um, there's narcissistic personality disorder and then there's guys who are just assholes. And it's, <laughs> you know, it's not the same yep. thing. Yep. And people can have, people can have, you know, you know, tens and tendencies and traits of being a narcissist or, you know, any other type of you know, personality disorder, but that doesn't mean that they're a full-blown narcissist. Right. Right. Which I'm sure still, you know, like you said, if they're being an asshole, it doesn't make it any easier to deal with them. For sure. So do you have like a therapist, a psychologist that uh, you'll, you'll bring in often for this type of stuff? Absolutely. Yep. So if, you know, we, you know, if people can't reach an agreement on custody and parenting time, they, you know, we can have them go through a custody and parenting time evaluation. Um, the evaluators, you know, not all of them are mental health professionals, but some of them are. And with a custody and parenting time evaluation, usually that evaluator has the option to direct the parties to participate in a psychological evaluation if needed, a chemical dependency evaluation if they think it's needed. So if there are allegations, you know, being flung about, you know, chemical dependency, an option that the evaluator would have would be to have the parties participate, one or both parties participate in either a psyche eval or a chemical dependency evaluation. Okay. And then they would take those results and work it into their report for custody and parenting time. Sure. I would imagine you work pretty closely with social workers as well. Nope, not social workers. You don't. Okay. So I was thinking... Um, many of my students had social workers over the years. So I didn't know if that was something that you, um, with custody, uh, if there are, you know, the kind of the welfare checks or if, uh, if that goes through the social workers, um, and they get brought into the mix at all. If there were, if there was a custody and parenting time evaluation, again, if, if the parents can't agree on that and that evaluation is necessary, then the evaluator would certainly interview those you know, key people in the, in the child's life. So they might talk to the teacher, they might talk to a social worker. Um, if the child, you know, the children or child is in therapy, the evaluator would talk to the therapist. Um, so I just don't personally have that connection with those, with those individuals. Okay. Got it. You had talked earlier, uh, you'd mentioned COVID and that was something I wanted to talk to you about because there's not a, industry that wasn't hit by COVID in some mm-hmm. way. So yeah. what, how did it affect you, uh, your industry the most? I just think we saw a huge, huge rise in people coming to us and asking for a divorce. Um, you know, the, the reality is, is that I think people's relationships were tested 
by right. having to be in the same spot and not being able to get out and, you know, have that break. Um, so I think it was, they I think it was a test for a lot of people's relationship and perhaps those that were just on the brink of getting, getting a divorce, they were, you know, pushed, pushed toward that. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's what I anticipated. Um, and I, I haven't looked at any of the statistics, but I, I wonder what the, what the climb was in, in like the last several years. Yeah. And I, to be honest, I haven't either. I can tell you that my practice has grown. Um, you know, mm. so I, I mean, we're, we're, we're busy, we're busy and, yeah. you know, asking in the, in the family law community, the family law community in general is busy. Um, the courts are busy. Um, you know, I mean, like I said, it's very difficult, you know, to get into the court system or it can be, um, I shouldn't say that all the time it's difficult, but it's, you know, calendars can be challenging to get, you know, to get on the, the judge's calendar. And I think that's just because of, you know, how, how many people are in, you know, family law situations right now, you know, yeah. and with, you know, and, and with COVID, I mean, I, I suppose one thing that we can talk about too, is people lost their job or maybe they were, had a job that had increases in their income. So then you've got, you know, people who are already divorced or already have a support order and they're looking at a modification. So, you know, somebody's income is increased or somebody's income is decreased for whatever reason. And, you know, the support order that's in place is unreasonable, unfair, and under the statute when that happens and you meet the criteria, you can go in and ask the court for, you know, an increase or decrease to the support order. Yeah. I, I suppose for a lot of people, it was that perfect storm with so mm -hmm. many people getting laid off and then uh, being in close corners uh, without really a lot of reprieve. Yeah. And so if, yeah, they were on the brink, that was probably the straw that broke the camel's back. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I was very curious to know what, what age group do you see most common uh, where people are getting divorced? Because I, I know growing up and I think, you know, probably into my adulthood, I would see a lot of people choose to get divorced after their kids would leave home. Yep. And that would be the age that I would tell you, you know, okay. probably, you know, and I don't want to put a certain age on a person anymore because like nowadays you, people are having children later. So I, I, I think the timing wise, it's when the children are in high school or just getting out of high school. So um, you know, and, and many people probably should have gotten divorced before then, but they have mm -hmm. it in their mind that it's better for the kids to stick together until, you know, the, the kids are older and they think that they can handle it. And maybe that's true for those, for those children, you know, each, each child is different as well. Um, but yeah, that's usually the, the, the age it's when the kids are a little bit older. I'm so glad you said, uh, that they, uh, probably thought it was better for the kids. Um, and, you know, as you said, perhaps in some families that was the case, mm -hmm. but yeah, I have talked to a number of people who said, gosh, my parents get along so much better now yep. that they're apart. And I wish they would have saved me from hearing them arguing as a kid and they would have made this decision so much sooner. Yeah. And, you know, I maybe looking back, these parents, wish they would have done it differently too. Right. But, you know, for, for those, yeah. for those parents, I guess th their heart was in the right place. They thought they were doing sure. something, you know, I mean, you can't really fault them 
for thinking that they were doing what's best for their kids. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. There's beyond just wanting to keep the family unit together, which I, you know, I think anybody who has children, that's like your, mm-hmm. your goal. So I can fully appreciate that. Um, but in addition to that, the, the logistics of everything and, you know, adding that whole other layer, it's, uh, you're taking on a lot of stress, um, that, yeah, I, I, I completely get that. It's not, um, it's not an easy, easy decision by any means. No, no, no. And, and the fear of the unknown is, you know, that can be challenging for people too. And I, you know, I, I have, I'm, fortunate that I've had people, I've had former clients who have done this for me. So I have had people where I say, you know, they're, I mean, I, I, it's not uncommon for people to be in tears, you know, um, when they're talking with me and, you know, or just be upset and angry and mad. I mean, all of those emotions, it's normal. I mean, when you're going through a divorce, it's, you're going through a grieving process, you're grieving the loss of, of your marriage. And some people handle that better than others. And some people go through, the stages, um, quicker or better than others. Uh, you know, you can have a client who's coming in who they've thought about this for six months, longer, nine months, whatever, and they're ready to get a divorce and their spouse has no idea. So they've already gone through some of those emotions and thoughts and kind of wrestled with themselves about what they're going to do. And then they hit the other person with this, no, we're going to get a divorce. Well, now this person's behind, right? So that the the other spouse still has to go through that same process. And so sometimes it takes a while to have the other person catch up. Um, But what I will tell people is, listen, this is really hard. This is difficult. But you know what I want you to do? I want you to reach out to me in a year. One year from now, when your divorce is done, reach out to me and let me know how things are going, because I am going to bet that you are going to be doing better. You're going to be in a better place. It doesn't seem like it right now, but you're going to be in a better place. And I really appreciate the clients who do that for me because, because those are the people that really fill up my bucket because, you know, it's, my job is really hard and, um, dealing with these emotions and really keeping people going and on the right path. And when I can hear, that people are doing well and that they're happy and that they've made the right decision for their, themselves and their kids and their family. It, it, it's nice to hear. So I, I don't, and I guess if, I guess on the flip side, I haven't had anybody call me up and say, you're such a liar, Michelle. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I hate my life. I mean, I suppose there are, I suppose there are people that probably are out there like that are like that too. But, um, yeah, it's yeah. Well, and as you said, it is it, it is a grieving process, and mm-hmm. I've watched so many people go through it. And it's it's not just the uh, losing somebody that at one point you, you know you, you very much loved, and maybe still do love, uh, and yeah. they were your partner and your 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 rock probably. Um, but then it's also grieving the um, the idea of that life with that person, and so it's so layered, and uh, it's very yeah, I think it comes very layered. Yeah. You've Mm -hmm. got, you've got in-laws, you've got mutual friends, you have, you know, if you have kids, you have to show up at their sporting events or their school events and you see the same people. And, you know, but you know, it's, it's very multi-layered, very multi-layered. You spoke to uh, one of the things that uh, you love hearing in your job. And I, I wanted to, to know about 
more of those uh, those happy moments? Like, what are those things uh, that happen that really fill your cup and and make you love what you're doing? Well, gosh, um, I think the biggest thing is like what I said when I when I can, when I can hear people, you know, after it's all done that they're in a good place, but. I guess something that I haven't really thought about too much, but I, I can, I can also sense when people are in a better place, you know, so they, you know, they come to me in their first couple phone calls, they're, you know, panicked and, you know, very, very upset. And then as they're going further along in the process, I can hear that they're settling, settling down and, um, you know, maybe getting to a happier place and are not in that crisis mode. Um, you know, I really like hearing when, maybe when, when children have been struggling at the very beginning and, you know, then, you know, oh, they've turned their grades around or, oh, you know, they, they're doing things, the kids are doing things that are, you know, bettering themselves and they're, they're not in a terrible place anymore. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it is, it's just a really difficult job and I'm not really sure that a lot of people can appreciate that. And you think that, oh, you know, Michelle's an attorney that it, it it's it's not the it's not a, a necessarily a glorified job it's hard you know it's it's mm -hmm. a hard position mm -hmm. to be in um and there's a lot of things that i have to say and do that people don't like and it's it can be a, a very difficult to deliver an order where i'm sorry but you're not getting the parenting time that you want or we were asking for this much in financial support and the judge only gave you this you know, that can, that, that's hard news to deliver. Sure. You're walking people through such an intimate and vulnerable time in their life. And it's, it's probably both equally difficult as it is beautiful to, to help them get through it. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's also kind of strange too, because I, you know, I can go back and I, I mean, I've been doing this for a really long time and I can think of so many people that I would have conversations with two, three times a week, right? And then they're divorced and then they're gone. I don't hear from them again, you know, and that's, yeah. and that's really strange, right? I mean, it's very strange to develop a relationship with somebody and, and they're my client. I mean, I don't, it's not like I'm, you know, having like long lasting friendships necessarily, but it's, it's very different, you know, having those conversations and being very involved with somebody's life and then, you know, but, but at the same time, great. You know, I, I don't, I right. hope I never have to hear from them again at the same time, because right. that, that means that everything's going well and they don't need me to figure anything out for them. Yeah. So that's, that's also good. Yeah, it's got, it's gotta be a bit surreal uh, to be really so close. And like you said, I'm sure um, people are really leaning on you for more than just legal advice during this time. As much well, they as, try. You know. Yes. No, they try. And I, you know, I will, I, I have a list of therapists <laughs> that yeah. I will recommend. Um, but I also, I also have to caution people, you know, and I, I, I can't tell you how many times that a, a text message will go out or an email will go out and I just, you know, will shake my head saying, I wish you wouldn't have sent that. <laughs> You know, I wish that mm. message wouldn't wouldn't have gone because once it's out there, you can't take it back. Um, so I yeah. have, I do tell clients when they're in that spot, I, I tell them just send it to me. If you need to send it to somebody and it makes you feel good to get get that out, just 
write it yeah. all down, get it all out, send it to me and I'll delete it. <laughs> it won't go yeah. anywhere, but yeah. Yeah. That, uh, writing is super cathartic. So I can see that it is uh, yep. it out, it off their chest yep. and maybe just to have somebody else receive it and make them feel seen, seen and heard, even if you're just going to delete it. So, yep. yeah. yeah, I love that. Uh, Okay, we talked a bit about um, the uh, misconceptions. There was just, um, oh, I know, as not to go in a totally new direction, can you talk about the difference between physical versus legal custody and why is that important for people to know as they're entering into a custody agreement? Yeah, for sure. So legal custody means a parent's um, the parent's ability to make decisions regarding a child's um, medical care, their religious upbringing, and their education. So those are the three buckets of, of legal custody. And in Minnesota, there's a presumption that both parents should have legal custody. So joint legal custody, it's a rebuttable presumption. Now that presumption is rebuttable. And I can tell you that there's been a handful of my cases where I have gotten sole legal custody for one parent. And usually there's good reason. So, Hmm. you know, more often than not, a parent should be able to make those big life decisions for their child. So that's what legal custody is. Physical custody is more or less what it sounds like where the child is physically. And it used to be years ago that that label mattered a lot because it was tied to child support. It is no longer mm-hmm. tied tied to child support. So physical custody doesn't mean as much as it used to. So, um, you know, I, there, I can have a situation where I have parenting time split that's 60-40. So let's say mom has 60% of the time and dad has 40% of the time. If dad wants to call it joint cust- joint physical custody, okay, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Um, okay, it doesn't matter as much. I mean, it can matter. Um, you know, if if maybe if mom wants to ar- try and make an argument that you know he shouldn't have any more parenting time, maybe the label might help a little bit, but it it really doesn't doesn't matter as much anymore. Okay. So, and with child support, what is kind of the the default for that? Um, that uh, well, there's that no manner? there's no default. So, and one thing that I should say about physical custody too um, is that there's also a presumption that a that a parent should have twenty a minimum of twenty five percent parenting time, which usually equates to be about four out of fourteen nights. So it's you know every other weekend and one overnight um, during midweek. That's a um, four out of 14 night parenting time schedule. So that's the kind of a default for parenting time. We're seeing more and more that it's getting closer to an equal parenting time. If that's what's in the kid's best interest, usually not with younger children, but you know, as children get into school age, that's kind of what, what people see now. Um, but child support, what, what was your question about that? Yeah. Uh, how is that typically delineated, uh, you know, with, um, Obviously, it's a reflection of uh, the caregiver's uh, income. But yep, yep, um, it's both incomes. Yep, yep. So you have, and and child support is, you know, I don't want to take away my job necessarily, but you know, it's kind of easy to figure out. You can play with the numbers. There's a, a calculator that's online, and there's data points that you enter in. So it's the gross income for both parents. So for mom and dad, you put in 
um, the incomes, uh, gross incomes. Um, you will include whether or not, whether one parent is paying for medical and dental insurance, that number can be plugged in. Then that's the number just for the child or children, not for, you know, not for dad's insurance or mom's insurance. So it's just the cost for the children alone. And you can plug in if daycare is a cost. And then you put in the number of overnights. So if it's equal parenting time, you'd put in 182.5. If it's a different type of schedule and maybe mom has 100 and dad has 200, you'd plug in those numbers and then you hit calculate and oh, pops a number. Okay. So it's, it's not, it's not difficult. The difficult piece is, is maybe figuring out what the income is. Um, you know, if you don't have a W2 employee or maybe one parent is underemployed, you know, you've got the instance where you were saying that, you know, maybe wife wasn't working. Well, does wife have the ability to work? What should that income look like? So that's where the arguments will come in. Um, is what's the appropriate number to put in for people's income. But if you have two W-2 employees, it's usually not that hard. Okay. So somebody who's been, say, a stay-at-home mom for most of their life, and then they get through a divorce, if they're able-bodied, um, this is when a lot of women find themselves uh, going back to work or maybe working for the first time Yeah, because of that? Yep. Yep. Um, and yeah. you have situations where... You might you might say, all right, we'll we'll agree that you know she can earn. I'm just throwing out a number. Let's say she can earn thirty five thousand dollars a year because she's you know hasn't worked in twenty years. She's young enough. Um, you know this is an entry level position somewhere. Um, if she doesn't want to work, she doesn't have to work. But that will the court will presume that she has the ability to make that much. So support would be set accordingly as if she had that income, but it's, you know, you can, you can choose to work or not work. That's going to be up to that individual person, but the court will impute income if you're, you know, young enough and able, and you don't have any physical or mental limitations prohibiting you from working. Okay. Typically, yeah. I should say not all the time. I mean, there's always, there's always the caveats, but generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I know some situations where, uh, female wants to keep their, uh, they're accustomed to their lifestyle mm -hmm. of being at home. Yep. And, uh, and so is that more of a, a, I don't want to say a leniency, but an agreement that they come to with the other party that they're, they're going to continue to do so? Do they have to be kind of excused to, to not have to work and for the, the other spouse to pay? I suppose, you know, you could reach an agreement that, that her income is zero. I guess. I mean, you, you could you can reach any agreement you want that's reasonable. And the court, right. if the court looks at it and says it's a it's a reasonable um, agreement, the court, you know, may, may usually will sign off on it, especially if there's two attorneys involved. Um, but what I what the point that I was making is, is if, you know, if we're sticking with this wife, you know, I, I don't like to gender do it too much, but we'll just stick with what you were talking about. So let's say wife isn't yeah. working. Um, let's say they're 50, um, you know, they're both about 50. She hasn't worked in 20, 20 years or so, maybe 20, 25 years, but she's 50. She still has a good 25, 27 years left to work. Mm -hmm. If husband agrees that she doesn't have to go back to work, 
I guess they can reach that agreement. I would be surprised if that agreement right. was met, unless they have a lot, a lot of money and wife gets a pile of money and she's going to earn interest off of the property settlement. And then she won't have to work because she can live off the interest income. So I guess that's, that's another, and, and you know what, family law and law in general is a lot of, it depends. And so, you, you know, okay. you, you hear that a lot, but yeah, it, it's going to depend on the, the facts of that specific family. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, you talked about, uh, some of the, the best parts. What would you say is the, the hardest part? Oh, <laughs> Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, if, gosh, how much longer do we have? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think for me, it's the kids. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a mom. I have, I have two boys, they're grown. I still want to, as adults, protect them as much as possible. I think that's just, you know, a natural instinct. So when, when you, when I see kids struggling, and I see situations where parents just don't get it because sometimes they just don't. That's really hard. I, I don't, I don't like seeing how kids get impacted. Um, you know, it, tough custody cases are really hard. They keep, they keep you up at night. I mean, they, sure. they really do. They really do. You know, when there's abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse, you know, that's just, it's hard to see. It's really hard, hard to see, hard to manage. Um, you know, so that's, that's difficult. Um, domestic violence is hard. Um, on either side, I've had male clients who have been abused by their wife. You know, it doesn't, that doesn't matter. Um, yeah. you know, domestic violence is hard. Sometimes just how long the process can take in general and having people frustrated, that's hard. Sure. Um, you know, I try and wrap things up as quickly as I can. I mean, some divorces, you can, you can get somebody in, you can get a client and you can go to one mediation session and you write it, write it up and you can be done in three to four months. Right. You know, it's, it's yeah. possible. Um, others, it just really, really drags on and that can be hard. It's hard on the, the entire family mm -hmm. to have the process take so long. From my experience when I was teaching, it seemed like um, it's not uh, it's not easy for a kid to be taken out of the home. And I don't know if that's a Minnesota thing or what, but um, I I knew of a lot of you know things that kids were enduring. Um, there were social workers involved in things. Uh, it was. It was very uh, rare that a kid was in foster care. Most all of my kids were still in homes where that stuff was going on. So, um, is that what you're what you see? And and I guess my question is, I'm gonna ask why, even though uh, I think I know. But um, what factors into that, and what does it take to get a kid removed from a, a, a unsafe environment? I'll be honest with you, Lindsay, I don't see a lot of that. My, in, um, I've had um, child protection involved in my cases, but it's never been to an extreme where there's been such violence or abuse by one or both parents that I've, that I've had that come into play. Um, that, and, and generally speaking, that's not something that my firm deals with. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking I, we have like eight attorneys here 
Um, and I can't think of a case right now or in, you know, since I've been here that, cause we talk, right. I mean, I, I would know if there was something that extreme that, that, that happened in the office. So, um, yeah, I, I don't have, I don't have any, a good answer for you on that. Yeah. Okay. But, but again, super sad. I, you know, again, it's, it's the kids and it's, it's, you know, people don't understand that what they do and how they act with children at a young age is going to impact their whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's hard. We, uh, my students would go through uh, an ACEs test with um, right. mm-hmm. the adverse childhood yep. experience. Yep. And um, many of them would score a 10 out of 10, Jeez. you know, nine out of 10. That was, that was common. I taught in the alternative uh, high school realm. Okay. And so that literally just gave me the chills. Like I, I yeah. it's, that's awful. Yeah. So for those of you listening who aren't aware of the test, it, it basically asks, it's 10 questions. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if there is substance abuse in the home, if there's violence, if there's, and some of the things are, you know, they're not traumatic. It might One of them's a divorce. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, and that, and that it's traumatic, that could be traumatic, but not, not as traumatic not as, violent. yeah, as, as maybe some violence. Yeah. Drug use, I think is one of them. And yeah. 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 And, um, and so you, you see this and then you realize what a, um, what a hurdle just getting past those things, because even the, your, your health, your chances of heart disease and cancer and all those things go up with, with the scores. Um, so yeah, uh, for sure the, the, the kids part has got to be the most difficult. Um, but what, you know, the the fact that you're able to step into that role and to be somebody that people can can talk to um, because it is such a difficult role. We need more people who are empathetic, who can handle being there through the tough stuff. Because yeah, it's not it's not for everybody. But but thank goodness um, there are people like you who do it. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I I enjoy my work. I wouldn't, yeah. I, I wouldn't keep doing it if I, if I didn't enjoy it. So, I mean, some days are harder than others, but um, for sure. yeah. Yeah. Well, gosh, I mean, I, I, I could pick your brain for another hour, but uh, we're, we're well over an hour and I, I want to respect your time. Yeah. Um, but well, and can I, can I say one thing? Because there's one thing that I was yeah. thinking of real quick that, you know, if, if there's anybody you know, who's listening that, you know, is going through a divorce and they have custody and parenting time. I mean, I hear this from, from judges um, and, and these, there are statistics to support this, that going to trial and having other people make decisions for you, you know, the statistics show that you're going to be back in court. You're going to be back in court. So if, if you have kids and you can reach an agreement and you're never going to get an agreement that both of you like mediators will often say, listen, and, and this is just in general, I guess, with any type of mediated agreement is a good agreement is if both sides are unhappy. Right. So, you know, if you think about that, when you're reaching agreement, you're talking about your kids. A lot of people think, oh, I need my day in court. I need to go tell my story. I need the judge to understand. Well, you know what? The judge has 100, 150 other other cases the judge is going to listen to you. The judge is going to listen to the evidence that's submitted, but the judge is not going to know the specifics 
or the intimate details, like mom and dad know. There's, there's just no way that a judge, I mean, there's no way that I can, right? I mean, I know more than the judge, but I can't even present all of that to the judge so that the judge is going to understand everything. They do their best, but they're not going to know. So if you, if you can figure it out and try and reach an agreement that you both can live with, the chances that your kids are going to, you know, be better for it, that, that it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. But if you have a judge who makes this decision, one or both of you are going to be unhappy about something in that order. And that means you're more likely that you're going to be right back in the courtroom making, you know, having the judge make different decisions because you're not happy with, with something that, that was decided. Yeah. So it, it and, and you're saying this can be fleshed out with a, through mediation before it would go to court. So if they can, yeah, Minnesota, you're, you know, in family law, we're required to do some form of ADR. So some form of alternative dispute resolution more it's there's, and we could, I could talk to you a whole, about a, for a whole hour about different forms of mediation that family law people that we can go through, but yeah, you're required to go through one, at least one mediation session. Um, so, you know, just keep that in mind. People need to keep that in mind that if you want to stay out of court, the statistics show that if you reach an agreement on your own, the better. Now, you know what, that doesn't mean there are some cases that just have to go to court. So, you know, that those are the ones right. that go to trial, but right. not everyone, not every case needs to go to trial. Yeah. Well, that's good advice. I mean, and, and I think most all parents, hopefully in my optimist brain, mm -hmm. um, they, they, they want what's best for the kids, you know, even if they're, they might not be operating as such. Uh, I think that ultimately they, they do. And so, um, if you know that a, a fast remediation is going to, to be best, then, then yeah, you gotta, you gotta bend a bit and make a compromise. Yep. Yep. Oh, well, thank you so much, Michelle. Absolutely. I, um, I so appreciate your time. Um, and yeah, if, uh, if there are people who uh, are needing your services, which, you know, um, I, I, I say, I hope they don't. <laughs> <laughs> they might know somebody who does. How about that? They might know yeah. somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but of course, we'll have that uh, linked up. But, sure. Uh, yeah. Such a, a fascinating field. And um, yeah, you're, you're doing a lot of, of good work walking people through a difficult time. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet.